Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Zdrastvutia, and welcome to the history of Russia. This is episode 23, The Black Death. Thanks for listening in. So in the last episode we did a mini State of the Nation which looked at what life was like for Rus society during the early years of the Mongol occupation. And in summary, it was good, okay, for the Khans and the Orthodox Church, and not so good or terrible for the princes and the poor. And then we blitzed through the latter part of the 13th century and the early bit of the 14th and witnessed the decline of Vladimir, the rise of Moscow and finished off by observing the reign of Ivan I Kalita, or Moneybag, which brought us up to the year 1340. This week we'll be bringing the pace back down and looking at the reign of Ivan's son Simeon, which started in 1340 and came to rather a tragic end in 1353. And maybe you've joined the dots, but if you haven't, the clue is in the title. But before we meet Simeon, there's just a general point that I want to make. I don't know why I haven't mentioned this before, and maybe it was glaringly obvious, but just in case it wasn't, right from the earliest times, from the 860s all the way through to where we are today, the same dynasty, the Rurikid, has ruled over the Vikings, Varangians, and the Rus. Taking its name from the semi-legendary-ish Rurik, the dynasty has somehow managed to walk through history's tightrope from its beginnings in Novgorod through its golden years in Kiev and ended up still going strong in Moscow by way of Vladimir. Now, I don't know how long the average ruling dynasty lasts, and there are some, like the Zhu in China and the Yamoto in Japan, that have lasted a lot longer. But the Rurikids have been passing the baton through the generations, sometimes smoothly, most of the time not so smoothly, for 478 years so far. Now, obviously, the rules around what constitutes a change in dynasty, or what doesn't, can be pretty tenuous or arbitrary. 
but 478 years is no mean feat. And so before we go any further, I think that a round or a ripple of applause is in order for the Ruru Kids. Okay, anyway, with that out of the way, let's crack on with some history of Russia. So, it's 1340. Ivan I is dead. Step forward Simeon Ivanovich into the glare of Rus' grand princeliness. So Simeon was Ivan's eldest son, and he's known to us today as Simeon the Proud. Although, during my initial read-through of his exploits, I didn't pick up on any specific reason as to why that was the case, and so we'll have to see if anything is hidden in the detail. Maybe it will come out in the wash. What will certainly come out in the wash is that during his life he had three key adversaries. The first, who we know all about, was the Republic of Novgorod. But Simeon was able to deal with that fairly minor situation without too much trouble. The second was Lithuania, who we know next to nothing about. Now I haven't mentioned the Lithuanians very much so far, but whilst I've been concentrating on the Mongols, Vladimir, Novgorod and now Moscow, they've been busy and Simeon is going to have his work cut out, keeping them mostly under control. And then his third enemy, which originated out in the east on the Mongolian steppe, and was the pandemic known throughout history as the Black Death or the Bubonic Plague. And for that, Moscow, like pretty much every other place in Europe and Asia that the plague touched, would have no answer. So let's take those three combatants in order, starting with Simeon's early years and Moscow versus Novgorod. So Simeon was in Nizhny Novgorod when he received the news of his father's death, and he realised that the first thing he would need to do was get over to Sarai and sort out the paperwork that would officially recognise him as Ivan's heir, not only in Moscow, which was more or less a shoo-in, but also as Grand Prince of the Rus lands, with the same tax-collecting responsibilities that had been enjoyed by his father. Just as a point of clarity here, going forward, I'll be referring to Nizhny Novgorod as Nizhny Novgorod and Veliki Novgorod, or the Republic of Novgorod, just as Novgorod, or the Republic. There, I hope that's clear. <laughs> anyway, it was securing the title position of Grand Prince that was the potential problem. And that was for two reasons. The first one was, even though Ivan had secured the agreement of the Golden Horde, they had in the past proved to be fickle and untrustworthy when it came to adhering to agreements that had been made in the past. And then secondly, there were now three roosters in this particular henhouse, as Moscow's new rivals, Constantine of Tver and Constantine of Suzdal, were also en route to the Khan, hoping at the very least to obtain a degree of independence from Moscow, and at most, complete control over their own lands. But there was no need to have worried. The Khan decided that the previous agreement made with Ivan was to be recognised in full and possibly his mind was swayed by the bribe that Simeon paid. Anyhow, the two Constantines were forced to accept that Moscow and its heirs were still going to be preeminent amongst the Rus, 
And interestingly, Simeon also gained a claim on his succession from another source, the Byzantine Empire. Ah, the Byzantines. Yes, they're still around, although they're far less significant than they were. And in fact, in less than 100 years, the empire would have ceased to exist. Anyway, Constantinople granted him the ceremonial title of Epitrapezes Officios. That roughly translates as Seneschal or Steward. And whilst being praiseworthy and commendable, it sounds just a little bit patronising, suggesting that the Rus somehow held their territory on behalf of the empire. So, later in 1340, trouble kicked off in Novgorod when Moscow's tax collectors arrived in the Novgorodian town of Tozhok. The local boyars locked the taxmen up and then realising that perhaps this wasn't the best of moves, called for help from Novgorod itself. When they heard about this turn of events, Simeon and the Metropolitan, Theognostus, reluctantly but hastily organised a coalition of princes against Novgorod, claiming that, I'm going to do my quotation voice now, they, the Novgorodians, make war and peace with whomever they please, consulting no one. Novgorod regards not all Russia and will not obey her Grand Prince. And two things here. Based on what we know about Novgorod, you have to admit that they had a point. And then the use of Russia again, rather than Rus. We find that creeping in more and more as we go forward. Anyway, as this coalition approached the Republic, the citizens of Torzhok, realising the way the wind was blowing, revolted against their boyars and sided with the Muscovite troops. Novgorod, also understanding how things were likely to pan out, and having problems of its own, and more of those in just a sec, decided to accept the, accept the likelihood of defeat by the coalition forces, and therefore agreed to cede all taxes from the Torzhok area to Simeon, who in return agreed to honour the town's existing civic charter. Okay, so what were Novgorod's problems? Well, they were twofold. The main issue was the constant raids on the Republic's territory that were being carried out by the Swedes, and more importantly, Lithuanians, who were becoming the growing power in the Baltic region. And then more indirectly, and probably caused by the external threats I've just mentioned, the Republic had started to be affected by internal political infighting, which whilst not terminal, had started to weaken its ability to resist the pressure from its western neighbours. And of course, it stands to reason that if Novgorod had a problem, then Simeon by default had a problem, because if he wanted overall responsibility over the Rus lands, then that surely meant that he had to step in if the most important Rus principality outside of Moscow was under threat, unlike some of his predecessors had with the southern and western provinces. But before we get to what happened, let's just break away from the main narrative because I think it's worth looking at why and how Lithuania was becoming a key force in the region. And spoiler alert, Lithuania isn't going to go anywhere soon. So first mentioned in the 10th century, Lithuania, or the area that makes up modern-day Lithuania, slowly developed from a territory that was raided by Danish Vikings into a territory 
that was paying tribute to Kievan Rus around the time of Yaroslav the Wise in the mid-11th century, and which then turned the tables and started to raid and pillage along the western fringes of the Rusiskaya Zemla during the 12th century. By the mid-13th century, the disparate Lithuanian tribes had united, but they then underwent a period of effectively fighting for their survival against the Teutonic Knights and the Livonian Order. And this went on for around 100 years before eventually the Lithuanians sort of came out on top and could once more turn their attention to lands, to the lands to their east. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit betterhelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. So in the late 13th and early 14th century, and with their territory secured and now rebadged as a grand duchy, and with Novgorod, Vladimir, and then Moscow striving for supremacy of the Rus, and making sure that the Golden Horde was kept happy, the Lithuanians once again turned their attention towards their eastern neighbour and began to make inroads into the Rus provinces of Polotsk, Volin and Kiev. Okay, so that's a bit of background on Lithuania. Let's get back to the main narrative. So we're in the 1340s, and Lithuania and Sweden are flexing their joint muscles in Novgorodian territory, which flexing their joint muscles bit sounds a bit weirder than I meant it to be, so sorry about that. So what should have happened, or what you might have expected, is that Simeon would have formed another coalition, marched into Novgorod, and pushed the invaders back. But that's not what took place, because he had decided to play a different game, one that, if it worked, would benefit Moscow in the long term. And to put this strategy into effect, the Grand Prince took what on the surface appeared to be two completely unrelated actions. So he played for time as long as he could, and then in 1347 he dispatched his brothers, Ivan and Constantine, into Novgorod with orders to do just enough to make the Republic think that Moscow was on its side and keeping the Lithuanians busy and occupied. In other words, Moscow was fighting for a draw or a tie. Meanwhile, he took every opportunity that he could to drip-feed the Mongols with negative propaganda about the Lithuanians, slowly building a picture in the Khan's mind that they were the real threat to the Golden Horde, whilst also explaining that he was doing everything that he could to keep them at bay. 
So Simeon's aims then appear to have been threefold. One, the Lithuanians defeat Novgorod, leading to its collapse. Two, the Mongols defeat the Lithuanians. C, the Mongols hand Novgorod over to Moscow, who've done very little of fighting themselves and get to take over Novgorod's lucrative trading empire. So what could go wrong? Well, the Lithuanians carried out their part of the plan, not that they knew anything about it, far too efficiently. And by 1351, were on the borders of Smolensk, not far from Moscow's own territory. But with the Mongols nowhere to be seen, Simeon was forced to get involved. So he did as little actual fighting as possible, preferring to get the Lithuanians involved in protracted negotiations, which would hopefully allow time for the Mongols to sweep in and save the day. But before that could happen, the Lithuanians no doubt weary after years of campaigning and with other territorial expansion in the southern and western Ruslands to concentrate on, decided to agree to Simeon's terms, allowing him to secure the disputed areas around Smolensk. Okay, so whilst all of this had been going on and a kind of stalemate had been reached between Lithuania and Moscow, a disastrous pandemic had spread throughout most of Eurasia, but not the Ruslands, or at least not yet. This pandemic, called the Black Death, originated somewhere in eastern Eurasia, we're not quite sure where, and is generally considered to have been caused by a bacterium, so it's not a virus, called Yersinia pestis. So Yersinia pestis infected fleas that then fed upon the blood of rodents, initially marmots and then rats, and in turn it infected them. Having then killed the rodent, the flea would look for another host, and as the pandemic took hold, this started to include humans. Now Yersinia pestis has always been around, and in fact has been the cause of at least two other major outbreaks or plague. One in 6th century uh, in Byzantine Empire, called the Plague of Justinian, and another in the early 20th, and in fact the bacterium is still present today. But no one really knows what caused it to proliferate and have such a massive impact upon the human population in the mid-1300s, although global warming, insanitary conditions and a growing urban population have all been mooted. The first recorded cases were reported from the Crimea in 1347, and from there the disease was spread westwards into southern Europe and North Africa by Genoese trading vessels, which unknowingly were carrying diseased rats. And people, I guess. From Italy, in 1348 and 1349, the plague moved through the rest of Western Europe, including France, Spain and England, and then started to spread back eastwards and northwards through Northern Europe, taking in Germany, Poland, Scandinavia and the Baltic states. So if you were unlucky enough to catch the plague, what happened? Well, that would depend on how it had been transmitted, as there were three different subtypes or streams of the disease, bubonic, pneumonic and septicemic, and neither of them were good news. 
Bubonic plague, thought to be spread via flea bites, caused swellings known as buboes, hence bubonic plague, to appear in the neck, groin and armpits of its victims, followed by acute fever and the vomiting of blood. This strain of the plague is thought to have had a mortality rate of around about 80% and usually death came within eight days. It gets worse. The far less common pneumonic plague impacted the lungs and killed pretty much everyone who caught it within seven days. And the extremely rare septicemic did the same but quicker and caused death in 100% of those who were unlucky enough to become afflicted. And the sheer number of deaths simply begs belief. And nobody really knows the exact figure, as population censuses were not kept at the time, but it's thought, and this is absolutely staggering, that between 75 million and 200 million died in Eurasia, which represents, we think, approximately 33 to 50% of the population. And if we put that into some kind of perspective, COVID has resulted in approximately 5 million deaths worldwide from a very much higher population. And the societal and human impacts of this pandemic were unimaginable and are best summed up by an Italian chronicler, Agnolo di Tura, who recorded his experience from Siena, where the plague arrived in May 1348. And I think this time, because this is quite serious stuff, I'm not going to muck around and do my, my voice. I'll just read it as it is. Father abandoned child, wives husbands, one brother another, for this illness seemed to strike through the breath and sight, and so they died, and none could be found to bury the dead for money or friendship. Members of a household brought their dead to a ditch as best they could, without priest, without divine offices, great pits were dug and piled deep with a multitude of dead, and they died by the hundreds both day and night. And as soon as these ditches were filled, more were dug. And I, Agnola de Tura, buried my five children with my own hands. And there were also those who were so sparsely covered with earth that the dogs dragged them forth and devoured many bodies throughout the city. There was no one who wept for any death, for all awaited death, and so many died that all believed it was the end of the world. And there were other impacts. With less people around to do work, wages rose, and established feudal systems started to break down. And then, of course, and at a time when science or medicine could provide neither reasons for or solutions to the suffering, people reasoned that the plague was some kind of divine punishment, or, on a more sinister level, they looked around for someone to blame. And the blame, of course, fell upon those who were different or who were outside of the mainstream or who were at least able to protect themselves. The Jews, the Romani, foreigners, beggars, pilgrims and lepers. And this blame manifested itself in the form of violent attacks, rioting and murder. So that was the Black Death. And in 1352, it was heading towards the Rus'. 
It hit Peskov at the beginning of the year, Novgorod in August, and by the spring of 1353 had reached Moscow. And this time, no cunning game-playing or strategizing could save the Grand Prince or his two remaining sons, or one of his brothers, or the Metropolitan. They all died. One last observation that perhaps comes across as insignificant after all of this mayhem, and perhaps is an indicator of how my brain works, is that I still can't work out why Simeon was called the Proud. Anyway, after what was quite a, a sombre episode, we'll hit the stop button there. When we hit play again, we'll be covering the life and times of Dmitry Donskoy, Simeon's nephew. And in this post-pandemic world, we'll start to see the first chinks or cracks appearing in the Mongol occupation. We'll also see the expansion of the Muscovite state, but, and isn't there always a downside, further trouble some of it serious with Lithuania. Okay, so until then, stay safe, look after yourselves, and I'll see you all soon. <laughs>